This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Mark Kurlansky discusses his new book, Havana, A Subtropical Delirium. Then PW contributing editor Claire Swanson dishes on cookbooks. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by NPD BookScan. Well, there's not much happening in hardcover fiction. The, right. the highest debut that we have is already all the way down at number 10. So uh, the top books are looking pretty much uh, like you would expect um, all of the same mm. things that uh, have been there in the last few weeks. So at number 10, we have Banana Cream Pie Murder, a Hannah Swenson mystery by Joanne Fluke. Uh, this is the 21st book in her Hannah Swenson mystery series. Our review calls it subpar. It starts when Hannah's mother hears screams and gunshots come Coming from a friend's house. Uh, she thinks that her friend, an actress, is giving an acting lesson, but of course the actress is dead. Mm. And so naturally, amateur sleuth Hannah is about to come home from her honeymoon, and, uh, and so she takes on the case. Uh, we say that an overly simplistic story and inconsistent behavior make this less effective than other books in the series, but fans will certainly enjoy the abundance of tasty recipes. So that's what uh, cozy fans are really in it for. (laughs) Uh, At uh, number 15 is Bone Box, a Decker-Lazarus novel by Faye Kellerman. Uh, Obviously a very well-known bestseller. This is the 24th book featuring retired LAPD homicide detective Peter Decker and his wife, Rena Lazarus. Uh, This is, uh, again, our review says it's so-so. Starts with a routine morning hike that becomes the catalyst for a search for a serial killer. And uh, the plot line unfolds predictably, and there's no real emotional tension despite a spat between Peter and Rena over watching TV. So that gives you an idea of how high the stakes are here. Um, But series fans will be pleased to learn that the couple's twin grandsons, although they're only seven years old, are basketball prodigies at their Philadelphia school. So this is like, you know, when you've been following a series like this for 24 books, you you get this sort of gossipy neighbor vibe where you're just like following these people's lives. And it's not so much necessarily about the case at hand Mm -hmm. as uh, the family and what's happening next in their personal lives. And finally, at number 17, uh, Firebrand by Kristen Britton. Uh, this is the sixth Green Rider epic fantasy. We said it's very exciting, packed with new perils for her heroine, Carrigan Gladion, uh, who has returned from the future in which her beloved land of Sicordia has been overrun by the forces of evil. So she needs to figure out how to stop that. She's also been injured. She's recuperating and uh, plenty of other stuff going on across this epic landscape. We say that old enemies and unexpected comrades in arms await Carrigan and her companions as they journey north and despite its heft the book is 816 pages oh wow uh, but those 816 pages fly by fly by (laughs) 
And uh, that's what we've got going on in hardcover fiction. That's um, that's that's the word. Well, we've got several more in nonfiction. Uh, a new number one by George W. Bush. Not what you would expect. This is called Portraits of Courage, a Commander-in-Chief's Tribute to America's Warriors. And this is now we've always known that former President Bush is a painter. This is what he spent a lot of his time doing. And these are portraits of, uh, I think there's 66 full-color portraits. Portraits and a, also a mural painted by him of, of uh, military officers who have served for the U.S. since uh, 9/11. So this is at number 11. No, I'm sorry, number one, topping the list. And then we have at number two, we have Unshakable, Your Financial Freedom Playbook by Tony Robbins, uh, bestseller of Money, Master of the Game, uh, and this is all about putting your finances together. So that's at number two. Then we have at number six, uh, something a little bit different, Cop Under Fire, Moving Beyond Hashtags of Race, Crime, and Politics for a Better America by Sheriff David A. Clark Jr. And this book is uh, blurred by Sean Hannity and um, uh, a few others. So it's kind of a, a different take on that, more conservative take on that. The Five Second Rule, Transform Your Life, Work, and Confidence with Everyday Courage at number 11. By Met Robin, so we're still seeing some more of this uh, changing your life, making it better, getting more financially stable. So now I grew up thinking the five second floor was that if you drop something on the floor, <laughs> when I or the saw five it. second rule, <laughs> if you drop something on the floor, you have five seconds to pick it up and eat it. Um, which, uh, you know, according to epidemiologists, is a really terrible idea. But um, right. I don't think of that as the topic of a self-help book. And exactly. And I, I, I thought the same thing when I first saw this. And uh, not too sure how he's uh, put the seconds. Uh, basically, uh, according to the blurb, it says it takes just five seconds to use this tool. And every time you'll be in great company, according to the blurb. So what you learn from here, you could put together in just five seconds. So some sort of positive thinking exactly yes yes so um but meanwhile the five second rule meanwhile the rest of us are eating food off yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) to change our lives lives. uh next at number 15 age proof living longer without running out of money or breaking a hip by gene chatsky she's well known she's a uh financial expert for the today show but she's known for a lot of these uh money books so um and this is at number 15 and then we have i think just two more we have Dodge City, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, and the Wickedest Town in the American West by Tom Clavin, uh, number 22. This is a narrative, one of only two on the list, recounting the most famous of cattle towns and its two most influential lawmen. Clavin argues that it wasn't gunfights, but rather the refusal to fight that eventually tamed Dodge City, Kansas. So we say to know the history of Dodge City is to understand how the West has won. And this history is often just as captivating and strange as the legends that have supplanted it. And finally, we have the complacent class, the self-defeating quest for the American dream by Tyler Cohen. He's a uh, economics professor, and he categories complacent Americans into three classes: the privileged, uh, those who dig in, and those who are stuck. We say that uh, his predictions take on a different coloring of the results of the 2016 presidential election, and it will be fascinating to see whether and how they continue. So, we'll see that. And that's at number 25. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Mark Kurlansky explores Havana's history and culture. We'll be right back. I'm Donna Freitas, author of The Happiness Effect, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Mark Kurlansky on the line. His new book is Havana, A Subtropical Delirium. Hello, Mark. So glad you could join us. Yeah, nice to be talking to you. So uh, I know uh, you've had a long history with, with Cuba, but tell us a little bit about how this book came about and what exactly is the delirium of the subtitle? Well, I mean, the book, first of all, came about because Bloomsbury has a series in which they ask different writers to write about cities that they love, and they've done one on Paris and one on Florence and one on Prague, and then somebody got the bright idea, why don't we ask Kurlansky to do one on Havana? And I do love Havana. I love the Caribbean. I've written, I don't know, five or six books, fiction and nonfiction, about the Caribbean, and Havana is the great uh, Caribbean city. This is also, by the way, my 30th book. Isn't that ridiculous? Wow. Uh, The reason I call it a subtropical delirium, uh, in in part because in, you know, reading literature, I mean, there's so many great writers from Havana. And um, this idea of delirium uh, keeps coming up. But uh, subtropical delirium is a quote from a Havana writer, I no longer lives there, but from Havana, uh, Abilio Esteras, who wrote, This subtropical delirium under the sun by the edge of a beautiful bay, diabolically beautiful, open to the perilous waters of the Gulf of Mexico, swarming with sharks and lost souls. Wow. Which is one of the, one of the best descriptions of Havana I've ever heard. My description of Havana is that it's, it's like an unshaven man in a tattered tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what goes into that that image? I mean, that's very evocative in just a few words. Um, but the the tattered tuxedo, the remnants of wealth, the the unshaven man. Tell us, tell us, sort of what those things are symbolizing and drawing on. Well, uh, Havana is a very old city from 1500, and uh, it has lots of great buildings from every period from 1500 to 1960, and they're all falling apart. And, you know, people who hate the Cuban Revolution like to blame this on the revolution, but uh, they've always been falling apart. I mean, you can go back and read descriptions of Havana in the 19th and even 18th century, and they describe how it's, it's how dilapidated it is. And the reason for this is that in Havana, wealthy people decide on the place where they want to live, and they build a lot of fantastic homes there. And then after some time, they decide, oh, this isn't cool anymore. We we don't want to be in Havana Viejo. We want to be on the Prado. So they go and they build beautiful homes on the Prado. The homes that they leave, nobody takes care of. Hmm. And, you know, in, in, in this climate, things deteriorate very quickly. So the result is that Havana is a city of lots of great architecture, and it's all falling apart. So you were Cuba's correspondent for the Chicago Tribune starting in 1976. Um, So obviously you traveled a lot there. Um, How often have you traveled, I I guess, recently, the last few years? You know, from time to time. I mean, I, uh, uh, I actually wasn't uh the trips correspondence they didn't have a correspondent at the time I covered the Caribbean and I would drop in from time to time I think later 
they did after I left. They did get a correspondence. It's difficult to get a correspondent in Cuba. But I, uh, you know, I don't know, from time to time, some years a few times, some years once, some years I never got there. But it's, a, you know, over a long period of time, since the early 80s. And what's changed over that time? And you say that the state of dilapidation has been pretty consistent, but also obviously it's a city and a country that's gone through a lot of upheaval. Yeah. I mean, when I when I first started going to Cuba, um, it was in the period when the Soviet Union was supporting the revolution. Uh, so it was very different from now. The Soviets just kind of subsidize everything that the Cubans were trying to do. Uh, so you get this sense that the revolution was working. And the revolution was, it was really interesting. There, there was a feel of an experimental society, you know, that was trying to uh, create, they call it the new man. They were trying to make people different. And uh, they changed wedding vows and, uh, uh, you know, tried all sorts of things, uh, some of which were very successful and some of which weren't. But it was, it was exciting to watch them try. They had no interest in tourism uh, and, in fact, kind of discouraged it. Uh, so that was a very different kind of setting. Of course, it meant that uh, there weren't that many uh, hotels and there weren't that many restaurants. Um, very different from after the Soviet Union fell. Mm. Uh, and this was a huge crisis. And there was not enough food. There was not enough medicine because they used to get the medicine from East Germany. And they started trying to rebuild a different kind of economy. And one of the things that they tried to do was have tourism, which they're very successful at. And, you know, have this million and a half tourists a year uh, without Americans. Right. Um, so Americans imagine that they will go there now and create this tourism industry. But the tourism industry started without them. Uh, the number of tourists that go there now is far more than it was in the famous 1950s. Right. You know, now now that things are changing or have changed between the U.S. and Cuba, I think Americans have a lot to learn about what's been going on there in the intervening time. Is, right. that, is that part of and, what and your I mean, book so, is? So far, it's not yeah. a huge change. I mean, compared to the change after the fall of the Soviet Union, that was a huge change. Um, the fact that more Americans are going there uh, is not a tremendous change. Um, you know, it's not as much fun for me. I kind of liked it when I was the only American there. <laughs> but uh, as I say, they have a tourist industry, and uh, uh, the Cubans are going to be very cautious about how they uh, allow and what they allow Americans to do because they have a history of Americans taking over their economy. I remember going to Canada and seeing billboards advertising tourism to Cuba, and it took me a minute to figure out why it looked so strange. And then I realized, of course, you would never see those billboards in the US. This is many years ago. Um, but uh, it, it did give me a little, a little hint of these things, um, these international relations going on sort of outside of the American purview. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Americans realize that the American embargo was an American fantasy that didn't have much to do with other countries. 
They tried to get other Latin American countries to go along with it. Some did and some didn't. First time I went to Cuba, I was a correspondent in Mexico, and the Mexican ambassador, uh, in, uh, the Cuban ambassador to Mexico invited me. Uh, you know, there were very open relations between Mexico and Cuba. Uh, a lot of European countries have had uh, open relations with uh, Cuba. So it, it's really, it's just America. <laughs> So you know, we say in our review that, that the chapters of your book read like a series of colorful picture postcards. Each one is like a touchstone of Havana's history and Cuban culture. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the culture. I mean, you cite things like uh, Cecilia Valdez and how th- that novel uh, comments on the Afro-Cuban culture and slave trade. Can you take us a little bit of the, of, of the history as you, as you were um, experiencing it? Yeah, well, the, the, um, the slavery... In Cuba, lasted longer than anywhere else in the Americas. It was the, the, the first country and the last to stop. Um, and slavery didn't really stop until the 1880s. So that when I first went to Cuba, I met people who had grandparents that they knew who were African-born slaves. Mm-hmm. So slavery is, is much closer to uh, Cubans uh, today than it is to any other country. Uh, And a huge, huge impact on the society. Uh, One of the things that makes Havana so different from the rest of Cuba is that it had a huge free black society, which uh, other places didn't have. Uh, And the reason for this was that Spanish law allowed slaves to buy their freedom. But if you were working on a sugar plantation, you had no possibility to earn money to buy your freedom. But if you were a slave in Havana, you could sell things on the street, um, including possibly yourself, and you would get the money uh, to buy your freedom. And this was a very distinct characteristic of Havana that people talked about. It scared a lot of people, you know, they had free black people there. But it made Havana um, a very strong center of African culture, uh, music, religion, uh, in a lot of ways. It's the most African place in Cuba. Uh, even their accents is strongly uh, influenced by uh, African languages. Uh, Habaneros have a very uh, peculiar accent, uh, which sounds like they have something very hot in their mouth. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of phonemes, a lot of syllables uh, get dropped. Um, I was very fond of the way Avadero say Kurlansky. They say, Kulanki. Hey, Kulanki. <laughs> but it has a nice sound to it. But, you know, uh, Fidel Castro was not an Avadero, and he didn't talk like them. And he talked very slowly and distinctly, which uh, journalists love. Uh, But that's not really the way people in Havana talk. And it's not just the Spanish not being my first language, because I've I've traveled uh, in Cuba with friends from Spain, and they had the same problems as I did. It takes you about a day to adjust to the habanero accents. It's really very unique. 
Tell us about some of the ways that um, that African history and the the history of slavery have affected um, the culture of Havana. Not not just like the atmosphere when you're there, but also the the artworks that it produces. Well, um, you know, music is the most famous example. Mm. The song, uh, which is really basically a, a Havana uh, form of music, and completely dominates Cuban music and, and Havana culture. An anthropologist once said to me that if you just watch people uh, in Havana when they're just kind of tapping their fingers, they're always tapping out song, which, you know, I've looked for and looked for, and I haven't really noticed it. But what I have noticed is that, because uh, you hear music all the time, partly because the windows in Havana have no glass, not that the glass is missing. They never did have glass. Um, and, you know, so music is just pouring out of every window, and a lot of that music is sewn. So if you have to be hearing sewn on the street while people are walking by, you can see that they kind of walk to the rhythm of song. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a rhythm that has become part of the uh, culture. When you were, while you were there, so uh, um, most recently, when was that? Uh, I don't remember the exact date, but I have been there since... Uh, uh, Obama reestablished uh, diplomatic relations. And what were the changes that you've seen? Uh, just going back on your metaphor uh, uh, of the uh, uh, unshaven man in a tattered um, tux, um, has the tux become new or has the man shaved? Uh, any changes? No, not at, all. Uh, not at all. I, I mean, the only difference I see in Havana is that they're talking about it a lot. And, you know, one of the famous characteristics of uh, habaneros is that they do talk a lot about everything. And uh, Federico Garcia Lorca, the famous uh, Spanish poet, loved Havana. And he used to, you know, the the Spanish verb for uh, to speak is hablar. And instead of calling them habaneros, he always used to call them hablaneros because they just (laughs) talk so much. So nowadays they're talking about, you know, relations. Uh, I, I haven't been in Cuba since Trump became president tonight. So I can only imagine how that conversation is going. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Mark Kalansky, author of Havana, A Subtropical Delirium. Um, tell us a little bit about Cuban cuisine. That's one of the things that you, uh, that you cover in your book. Yeah, well, um, Cuban food is very much like Cuban history. You know, you'll have a dish that will be um, part African and part Spanish and maybe part American and maybe part uh, uh native uh, Taino, uh, all in the same dish. The Caribbean uh, is is just full of things that were brought there. Bananas, coconuts, papaya, all these things aren't native to the Caribbean. 
Uh, and so the food, you know, the food becomes an agglomeration of all of these, uh, of all of these things. Uh, a lot of it is, is African, but a lot of it is Spanish. And say a lot of it is both. Is there anything that's uh, that's your particular favorite when you go to Havana? Is there something you always seek out that's like your your local comfort food? <laughs> My local comfort food is a drink. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, it used to be that you didn't get mojitos anywhere but in Havana. Uh, you really still don't. But uh, you know, I just I'm in Miami now. I just had a mojito last night, and it wasn't right at all. <laughs> Um, it's a it's a very uniquely uh, Havana thing uh, made with a particular local mint, and it always it always felt like when I arrived in Havana, I'd go and I'd settle in and I'd get a mojito, my first mojito, I'd sip it, I'd taste it, and I'd say, yeah, now I'm in Havana. <laughs> I'd like to know as you walked around. I mean, what is I, I imagine? I've always wanted to go to Havana. I mean, is it a very walkable city, or is it just the downtown area? Well, it's all about walking. Um, and you know, when you talk to habaneros uh, who have been to Miami, that's what they talk about. They say nobody walks there. You know, I, I, I went to Little Cuba, and there was nowhere to walk. <laughs> right. Uh, they walk everywhere there, and uh, they often walk, you know, there's not a lot of good sidewalks. They often walk down the middle of the streets. Um, Guillermo Cabrera Infante, one of the funniest writers that you've ever produced, in, in one book he, he said, uh, and there were these three guys, and you knew they were from Havana because they were walking down the middle of the street. <laughs> So tell us about, uh, you know, I'm, I've been fascinated with Cuba of the 1950s. And when, I mean, in, in earlier when Meyer Lansky was there and, and, they, and they, there were a lot of luxury hotels then. It was a, you know, it was a, a destination. What about now? I, I mean, I know you had said about the uh, that, you know, it seems, you know, for Americans that uh, no one went there because Americans didn't go there. But has that changed with with now that Americans are coming well, I mean, it's been changing. It's been changing since uh, the Soviets left, and they've been trying to attract tourists. And uh, fortunately, they haven't been building hotels. What they've been doing is refurbishing them. All those great old hotels you were talking about, like the Nacional, mm-hmm. uh, the Inglaterra, <laughs> and um, Parque Central, and all of these, the uh, Ambos Mundos where Hemingway used to stay. Um but they're also converting a lot of old mansions into kind of boutique hotels. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting choices. And there's still those, you know, the, the, the mafia ones that you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they kept those going, you know, changed uh, Havana Hilton to Havana Libra. And, uh, but, you know, there's those three or four high-rise hotels. And um, um, one of the things that you say is that the city is the most romantic in the world. So tell us why. Well, you know, that's a little hard to explain, except that I don't think anybody who's ever been to Havana would have any problem with it. <laughs> it's, something about, it's something about how fallen apart it is and yet beautiful and um, 
how it's it's hot and a bit mysterious and um uh it's uh just sort of feels like a place of intrigue and uh uh you know and it has great music and uh uh it's just a great uh romantic setting i actually begin my book by saying that if I ever wanted to make an old-fashioned film noir, I would set it in Havana because mm. it has that kind of feel to it. In spite of the fact that you know it's Caribbean and it has a lot of culture, there's there's something black and white there. There's something there that suggests black and white. Mm. Just, there's a strong sun, so there's you know highlights and deep shadows and uh, um, a lot of shadowy places that people suddenly pop out of into the light. And, uh, um, yeah, there was a movie, uh, the uh, Graham Greene, Our Man in Havana mm-hmm. uh, movie that uh, was made right after the revolution. Castor gave them permission to shoot there. And it's a great view of what you know Havana looked like in 1960. And it's not all that different from today. Um, actually, a lot of the movie takes place at Sloppy Joe's, which has been restored to its original condition. And it looks exactly the same. Really? You know, I went into the men's, you know, <laughs> in the movie, there's a scene in the men's room where the, uh, Alec Guinness gets recruited by the British Secret Service. But uh, um, they've used a different men's room. The men's room is the only <laughs> thing that doesn't look like the movie. <laughs> So um, give us a sense, you're very well known for these deep dive books where you take a particular topic and you really get into it from start to finish. Um, how, do you, how do you write? Is it research first? Is it um, sketching out everything that you know or you think you know and then going and digging for the things that you didn't know or you were wrong about? How, how do you approach a new book? Well, it's definitely research first. I always feel when the research is done that I'm almost finished. You know, all I have to do is write it now. Um, uh, in the case of this book, you know, it was just going back to years and years of reporting and experiences. And uh, um, I did some research and some reading, um, also old notes, old articles. Um, uh, but uh, I always do all the research before I do any of the writing. Um, and then I'm so happy when I start writing. <laughs> <laughs> and how long does it often take you to research? Um, a couple of years, uh, although this book didn't, because as I said, I you know I, I had so much of the research already done. Now, talking about writing, we've and and, and literature. You, you you refer to a, you know several Cuban writers. We've at Publishers Weekly. We've been going down there. We've had a bigger presence now in the last two years for the uh, book fair, and uh, we've been told that the uh, very probably that the literacy rate there is 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 pretty high uh, in yeah. uh, Cuban culture. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, you know those were the. <laughs> The great goal of the Cuban Revolution was uh, education and, and health care. And uh, education and health care uh, are very good. It's a joke you hear over and over again that the three, I mean, people, Americans don't realize this, but Cubans uh, tell a lot of jokes about the revolution. And one joke you keep hearing is that the three great successes of the revolution 
were uh, healthcare, education, and sports. And the three great failures were breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. It's a very literate population. And uh, <clears throat> I'm not only literate, well-educated. It's kind of a striking thing for me um, because I work a lot all over the Caribbean. And, you know, Cuba is the one place where, you know, if you just go and talk to some destitute guy on the street, uh, he's educated and he speaks well and he's very knowledgeable. So how did that change your your research process? And were you basically going and doing a lot of man-on-the-street type interviews or were you also uh, investigating libraries and, uh, and so forth? Well, yeah, both. And, uh, I mean, for this book, I really... Um, I really read and reread um, a lot of the Havana literature because it's great. And, you know, a book like Cecilia Valdez, uh, my God, you can read that book and you really feel like you're in 19th century Havana. You see exactly what it was like. Um, uh, there's all sorts of uh, tremendous books. Some of the books that were written uh, right after the Revolution and they're about that time. And, and you would think that they would be just really sort of doing this kind of cheesy gloss over uh, the revolution. But they are. They're very critical. It's also true of film. A lot of great Cuban films, and the films are often critical of the society. So with each trip there, uh, is there is there anything that surprises you? Um, always surprises me. Uh, how openly people talk about things mm. uh, for a notoriously um, closed police state. I think it is a police state. <laughs> police are everywhere. But I, it's, it's not really clear to me what you can and can't do. I mean, you can't stop overthrow the government. Um, and uh, they don't really like... Um, organizing, uh, political organizing outside of, you know, their institutions. But you can talk about things, you can complain about things. Um, people love to tell Fidel jokes. Hmm. People, I mean, I've been in societies like uh, Haiti under Duvalle or uh, Spain under Franco where, you know, if you could get people to talk at all, they just whisper. Uh, and she isn't like that. So um, you're wrapping up this uh, this uh, tour, or you're on this tour now for um, for your book. You're down in Miami right now. Uh, are you already planning your next thing, or are you really still focused on this one? I've actually written my next. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're on the ball. Number thirty-one, just cranking it out. Actually, if I hadn't left on tour, I would have finished it. I have. I have about three pages of writing left to do on my next book, which is a, a history of milk. Oh, wow. Um, of milk. Of milk, a subject that people have been arguing about for about 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and now more than ever, I'm sure you, the vegans have a lot to say. Uh, well, no, they don't, because they just don't, <laughs> don't drink milk. Um, but, uh, you know, the people who do drink milk, I mean, is it healthy? Is it not healthy? Is cow better? Is goat better? 
Uh-huh. Should it have GMOs? Should it be grass-fed? Should it, uh, uh, these arguments that go on and on. Should it be pasteurized or raw? A lot of Americans think that they never see anything but pasteurized milk, that that issue has been resolved, but it hasn't at all. Mm. Well, that sounds like something to uh, to keep an eye out for. So, so are you always doing overlapping projects? Is it always just right on to the next? Yes. Yeah. Not um, happy unless you're writing? Uh, well, as as that sounds, it's kind of true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking with Mark Kurlansky, and you can find his book, Havana, in stores right now. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Let's talk about I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Contributing Editor Claire Swanson talks about our spring cookbooks feature, so stay tuned. Hi, my name is Min Jin Lee. I'm the author of Pachinko, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW contributing editor Claire Swanson is here to tell us all about some recent and upcoming cookbooks. Hi, Claire. Hi, guys. Always very nice to have you on the show. Um, So tell us a little bit uh, about this cookbooks feature. It just came out. It looks terrific. Thank you. Yeah. So for the feature, we focused on um, spring cookbooks that are sort of geared towards the home cook who want to make the most out of their kitchens, Um, whether that means kind of coming to the kitchen for the first time and learning the fundamentals or taking a deep dive into a single dish, you know, with a single subject cookbook, um, or kind of making the most out of their gadgets, which there are so many now with lots of devotees. Um, We we sort of explored all these cookbooks for the home chef. So um, forgive my ignorance here. I think of all cookbooks as being for the home chef. So what sets these apart? Um, well, some of the publishers we talked to pointed to recent bestsellers in the last couple of years as being very um, chef-driven, you know, mm-hmm. gourmet, um, mm-hmm. coming from professional kitchens. And these, um, we noticed um, a whole host of cookbooks that are directed to people that maybe want to hone their skills at home. Um, Patricia Wells had a book coming out. Um, you know, she has schools in Paris and Provence. Um, called My Master Recipes, um, which teaches culinary techniques, sort of the basics. And we're finding that a lot of authors who are also teachers, um, there's Allison Kane, uh, who is publishing, sorry, the Haven's Kitchen Cooking School, and that's out of New York. And she also takes um, a key lesson for each chapter. The vegetable chapter focuses on seasonality. The sauce chapter focuses on balance. Um, So we're sort of seeing books that are, about the fundamentals. And very educational, it sounds like. Exactly. Like, it's very, it's very practical. Mm-hmm. And maybe not cooking from a recipe, but rather how to cook in general. Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I usually expect that sort of thing to come out uh, in the fall, maybe, when you can hand it to someone who's, uh, you know, heading off to college and trying to figure out cooking from first principles. But this, this sounds like it has a different focus. Yeah, I think this might be a bit more evergreen, mm-hmm. um, and it sort of it might stem from just a greater desire to DIY. And so, some people, you know, publishers and authors said that social media. There's two sides of the social media coin here, in that people want to share what they cook and they want to know how to cook to be able to do that. Um, but also, this abstract world that people live in um, is making people want to get their hands dirty too and and come around a table together. So I, th- I think it's a, it's a, it's a larger um, desire to come to the kitchen as opposed to maybe someone who's fending for themselves for the first time. 
So one cookbook I notice is uh, Samin Nasrat's Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Uh, yeah. Now she was a she was a uh, uh, one of her first students, or at least best known students, was Michael Pollan. Uh, right. So, so tell us a little bit about that that book. Right. So the it's the idea is um, cooking from those elements: salt, fat, acid, heat. Salt and fat for flavor, acid for balance, heat for texture. Um, it was a, a, a technique that she developed um, while, while learning to look at Chez Panisse, um, Alice Waters' restaurant, a very famous restaurant. And um, she decided to share this sort of um, digest of how to, you know, um, conceptualize cooking with readers. And it's, it's very, you know, it's a, it's a really new idea. Um, it, it has illustrations from a graphic journalist, so it's a very much a teaching tool book. And what are some of the other elements or other books that um, really jumped out at you in the feature? Um, I think that it, it's hard to ignore um, the, the tool tie-ins mm. because in 2016, three of the top ten best-selling titles of the year were devoted to one single you know, kitchen tool, the Inspiralizer, the mm. Air Fryer, the Electric Pressure Cooker. This year, it seems to be all about the Instant Pot, and that's not slowing down. Um, Rockridge has another title. Um, or had, had the best-selling title last year um, with 45,000 print copies sold this year already. Um, Adams is releasing the I Love My Instant Pot recipe book. And so we're seeing a lot of people who are you know, spending money on these gadgets, um, you know, becoming a part of the, the, you know, the cult of the Inspiralizer or the Instant Pot and want to really learn how to use them. Um, America's Test Kitchen has a food processor book coming out, Page Street sort of, takes it old school with the cast iron skillet, a mm-hmm. book devoted to the cast iron skillet. And so that's something we're actually seeing from 2016 that isn't slowing down, but it still sort of ties into this, um, over, you know, this overarching trend of home chefs wanting to sort of make the most of what they've got. Well, I, I will say as someone with a kitchen full of gadgets, that all sounds really great. I don't have an instant yeah. pot or a spiralizer, but I have, you know, a bread yeah. machine and a pressure cooker and <laughs> a Cuisinart. And, um, yeah, I, I would love to. Yeah. They said sort of see things like and wants to fill the gap to where the kind of the literature that comes with the product, um, right. you know, where that le- leaves off and mm-hmm. so to, have to, to be able to have an authoritative source in a book. I've definitely found that with my pressure cooker, I get a lot out of pressure cooker cookbooks because, um, it's so hard to adapt non-pressure cookbook recipes or non-pressure right. cooker recipes. So, Very specific. Um, yep. So that sounds uh, genuinely useful for people who have those tools or who want them. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't want them, you know, collecting dust. You want to be able to make, you know, if you're spending right. money on them, if they're taking up space, you want to be able to use them to their full potential. And publishers were kind of turning to that. And and a kind of uh, back to basics, there's also one I see here, uh, Rachel Mamain, I think, uh, Mastering Stocks and Broth. So. Yeah, I mean, and that's Chelsea Green. And, and they sort of made the point that, that stocks and broths, well, I mean, just of the utmost importance, normally get kind of relegated to this footnote of cookbooks. Right. And so we did see a whole bunch of books that were taking like a more, a, a narrower focus um, on a single subject in order to help people master those, right. um, whether it's, it's learning how to make pizza or stocks and broths or perfecting the omelet. There are a whole spate of books about, you know, honing in and zeroing in on, on one dish, which is, is sort of like with the abundance of information out there, um, some editors feel that, that that's really speaking to home cooks at the moment, too. Is there really enough in something? I mean, I guess pizza, there are a million variations, but... I'm hard-pressed to imagine how one fills an entire cookbook with omelets. 
So there's the classic French omelet, the American diner omelet, the frittata, and the dessert omelet. And um, what Ann Treisman at, uh, at Norton told me is that when sometimes when um, chefs are being tested at restaurants, that's the test dish. Yes. Because it seems so simple, but execution is, is everything. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of taking, again, something that, that has a professional element and bringing it home and bringing it to the home kitchen. A dessert omelet. Yeah, new one to me too. I would have never thought. I know. I mean, I, I believe you. It's like it's like a crepe without all the things that make a crepe delicious. Right, I'm right. A little confused, but uh, you know, sure, why not? Yeah, that, that's that's what that the perfect omelet focuses on. One chapter is on dessert omelets. And then another book we we there's the uh, we did a profile on Melissa Clark with her new book uh, Dinner, which mm-hmm. seems like another you know kind of uh, uh, basic mastering. Right, and also a big part of Melissa Clark books is, is, is high flavor and low labor, mm-hmm. which ties into an, you know another trend we were seeing, which is people want to ditch the takeout, but they also want to cook locally and, and eat clean and, and do it themselves. And, and how do you how do you square that with having so little time? And so we saw a whole bunch of books that address that. People that were you know foodies, but mm-hmm. you know only had a it's a finite amount of time at night to make dinner. And so it was saving time and money in the kitchen. And um, Melissa Clark's book was about that. Um, there's um, Electra Weedman's The Impatient Foodie um, coming from Scribner. And that's kind of to adapt the ideals of slow food movement to the realities of busy schedules. And, um, yeah, so, again, it's people making the most out of their kitchen with, with what they have allotted. I feel like um, in the past those would have been freezer cookbooks, you know. Yeah, I think it's sort of, I think that's, it's that category maybe, maybe expanding, growing up, um, moving on, you know. To, and, and, again, like a slow cooker, hands-off books, too, mm-hmm. um, make-it-ahead kind of books um, that sort of teach you how to do it with a lot of flavor and panache, but um, a little quicker. You know, while we're talking about salt, fat, acid, heat, um, are you seeing any shifts in uh, how these cookbooks approach nutrition? There's been a lot of talk about sugar recently, uh, right. about, you know, research that was uh, apparently suppressed um, into just how bad sugar is for you and that actually right. you don't need to cut the fat. More fat is great. So how right. how is that influencing these cookbooks? I think I think that cook, every cookbook at least addresses how to, to make... If not, if it's not specific about nutrition, about you know cutting sugar or um, cutting carbs, it's it's about being just cognizant of what you're putting in your body, and um, again that ties in with the whole feature because if you're if you're cooking yourself, if you're 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 just being a bit more aware about what you're eating. Um, we did see uh, again because it's hard to classify this as a niche book now because it's just absolutely um, everywhere is is vegan titles as well, that's kind of mm-hmm. becoming a new basic. Um, HMH will have Robin Robertson's Veganize It, which sort of consults people on how to make homemade versions of store-bought vegan products mm-hmm. so they can do that for themselves. Um, but, you know, sour cream, vegan sausage, packaged products that can just sort of be made at home so people are entirely aware of what they're putting in their bodies. I feel like I've seen some veganism for non-vegans books yeah you know, some real yeah, evangelism efforts the masses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 
And I, I mean, this your 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 feature is chock full of other subjects. We don't need to go into detail, but I just want to. I mean, a whole slew of I want to say you know a half dozen or more uh, Jewish cookbooks, yeah, um, Southeast Asian uh, cookbooks, and then I, I think a really big trend that I was seeing last year coming into this year is fermentation. Yeah, I think preserving in general, yeah, is having a moment, but and then I think fermentation. As right now is in the spotlight. Right. Um, I think it, some of the editors that we spoke to were saying that it, it, this is about connecting with food again in a very elemental way and maybe slowing down a bit. Right. Fermentation is very slow and very, you know, it asks a lot of patience, but it's, it's hands-off, and I think, you know, people can preserve farm stand foods um, for years and, and do it themselves. With the, with the nod of, of being very aware of what's going in your body because you know, the, the, the uh, fermented foods are, are supposed to be very good for the gut. Yeah, the, the probiotics and the, there's health right. benefits in, in terms of fermented fermented yeah. food, yeah, for sure. So I, I feel like it's time for Miyoko Shinner to come out with another book of her vegan cheeses, which are um, definitely which have probiotics in them and are are left to to cure and culture the way dairy products are. So it sounds yeah. sounds like that would be a great mix of the trends. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be the time for something like that. And then the last thing we did, which was sort of fun and it tied back into our um, sort of cooking 101, is asked a few of these authors who are also teachers just to kind of answer their um, this sort of a basics questionnaire, like the most essential kitchen tool or, you know, what's the tip for novice cooks, which mm. was sort of a fun thing to compile and to hear their, their answers, which ranged from, you know, a level head in the kitchen to a sharp knife in terms of what's the most essential kitchen tool. So they interpret it in all different ways. And uh, uh, Samin Nosrat, I'm just looking at it now, says, taste everything. Yes. <laughs> taste, taste, taste. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, was, that was fun to, to, to assemble, and, and they all had um, interesting and very, very things to say. Did you uh, learn anything from that that you're going to take to your own cooking? I actually, from Samin, I, I, I learned to um, brine roast chicken in buttermilk beforehand, which I, I brine, but I, I've never brined it in buttermilk. And wow. she said she... Yeah, that's her go-to. Hmm. So I need to give that a try. Well, Claire, thank you so much. It's always great to have you on the show, and we really yeah. appreciate you letting us know um, all about this feature, which is out right now. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another great author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 